Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry Rowland, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Uh, I don't know what edition this is. Should be uh, pretty interesting and entertaining. How about that? Uh, this, this is the interrupting Chuck from watching the Kavanaugh hearing edition. Yeah, really, man. <laughs> Talk about historic, huh? Oh, I was glued to it, and then like, oh, we got to go do my job. <laughs> Sorry. For some reason, I feel guilty like I'm responsible for that. <laughs> no, no. It's not your fault. Uh, Good, thanks for letting me off the hook. we got to make the donuts. <clears throat> Man, don't get I, me started. I'm recording it, so I'll just go back right after this. Oh, okay, cool. Well, we'll talk really fast. I'll go back to seething rage right after this. You'll just be like, uh, <laughs> you'll be like, no one tell me what happens. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, all right, let's do it. Death by invention. Yeah, I guess it, this would be the, the horribly ironic twist edition of Stuff You Should Know. Yeah, and, um, you know, we are talking about people who died by their own hand in a way, mm-hmm. as in, and it's really sad. I mean, all these people are, are pursuing their passions for the most part. Uh-huh. Uh, and to die because you are a creative, inventive, passionate person, mm-hmm. except maybe in the case of Lee C., uh, it's really sad. It is. I, I think um, to die in any way at any time for any reason is is unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> it's just wrong, you know? Yeah, they listed out a couple before the official list of five. Yeah, there's like a whole very long oh, yeah. list of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could do the same show like every like, like once a quarter maybe. Maybe we will, Chuck. Five more people? Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how this one goes. How about that? Did you want to touch on a couple of those other people, though? Yeah, I mean, um, Henry Wynn Stanley is definitely a a kind of a famous one. He built a a very famous lighthouse, Eddystone Lighthouse, back in 1698. Yeah. And I think that was the first iteration of it. I think there's been four total. And we talked about it on the um, lighthouse episode. Yeah, I think this was the first one on rock. Right. And this is like out out there on on some rocks in the ocean or in the channel, one of the two, or the sea. It's out in the water. Yeah, a a candle light, old school candle lit lighthouse. Very romantic lighthouse. Very romantic, invented by, like you said, Mr. Henry uh, Wynn Stanley. Great name. And speaking of great, five years later, there was a great storm. And this lighthouse actually that he built collapsed on him and killed him while he was trying to shore it up. Yeah, him, he and five other people, and they were never found. That's just sad. I guess the Swee, the Swee, the Swee swept them, <laughs> right. as the Swee does. <laughs> swee swells, Swee swells by the Swee swore. <laughs> yeah, it's really, that's it's such a tragedy. Uh, what about uh, Marie Curie, who yeah. died at 66 from yeah. radiation poisoning, which technically she didn't invent radium and polonium. She discovered them. But, I mean, her work, she won Nobel Prizes for it. Um, yeah, for like her the, work. the dangers of working with, uh, as, I mean, always dangerous, but especially back then. And then in 1945, again, uh, physicist Harry uh, Daglian. I'm going to say Dalian. Dalian? I like Daglian. Okay. D- Dalian? That's what I'm going with, but hey, man, it's up for grabs. So, silent G, silent H. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's a little bit of a guttural in there. Like why, do you, why do you hate letters? 
<laughs> right. <laughs> Those are superfluous letters right there. So Harry Dalian uh, was another uh, uh, scientist who he was working on the Manhattan Project mm-hmm. on the demon core, the, the core of the plutonium bomb. And he died by his own hand as well. He was stacking carbide bricks, tungsten carbide, mm-hmm. around the core and dropped one, which I can't imagine, like, what a frightening moment that would be. Yeah. Even more so, Chuck, he, he had a monitor. He was trying to see how many tungsten bricks it took to make the plutonium go critical. Yeah. Which is like, once it goes critical, you've got a nuclear explosion on your hands. So he's just sitting there messing around with this. He's got a monitor showing him. And the monitor said, hey, man, that last brick will make this go go critical. Right. Um, it was a monitor from the 70s, so it said things like, hey, man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he knew, like, I got to get that brick away. And he went to go, like, pull it back away from the stack. But in, in going to pull it away, he accidentally knocked it onto the core. Yeah. So he had to go into the stack after it to get it away from the core to make sure that the thing didn't blow up. And he did, but he uh, supposedly suffered tremendously from um, radiation poisoning. Yeah, I mean, he died within a month. So that's that's pretty tragic. And, you know, he it sounds like he was a hero because if that thing would have exploded, mm-hmm. uh, many, many, many lives lost. Yeah, he's definitely honored as a hero. He also was not one to follow the rules, apparently, because he was in there the lab by himself, which was against protocol. I think he went back to work after dinner and was sitting there working on a nuclear pile by himself that he was trying to see where the, the threshold was for getting it critical. Jeez. That's a little crazy. So these examples just serve as a setup, though, to the official five. Mm. Uh, and we're going to start with Lee C. L-I-S-I. I got no love for Lee C. No. No, this is not one of the ones where... Just a great creative following their passion. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he was passionate about <laughs> harming <laughs> others and about taking torture. advantage of people and court intrigue for sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but we're going back to ancient China here, mm-hmm. uh, roughly 221 uh, BCE. Is that what we're saying now? Yeah. And China at this time uh, was making the conversion from – just a, a, a big mess of, of warring states into what would be uh, eventually be the uh, Qin dynasty. Is that right? Qin. Qin? Mm-hmm. We've been corrected by that officially, too, in yeah. emails. I looked it up again. I was like, I'm not, I'm not falling for this again. <laughs> Here, I did it. I think it was the, you last time. It definitely was. So, the, yeah, the Qin dynasty finally uh, uh, being ruled by one dynasty. So it was, it was a big change for China. It was. Um, but the way that they assembled um, all of these kind of like fractious states into a, a single empire was through this practice called legalism, yeah. which is a, a political doctrine that basically said it basically uh, assumes the worst about people, that they're selfish and dumb and that the best way to make a state out of your citizens is by exploiting them and lying to them and passing a law for everything and then brutally enforcing it. Yeah, and kind of the government just fully uh, fully ruling with an iron fist its yeah, citizens. It's, it's like proto-fascism. Like the, the, the point of your citizenry is not to serve them. It's for your citizenry to kind of give all their power and work and attention to the, the state, to yeah. the emperor. Yeah. So there's this um, sort of an outlier as far as uh, where this guy started out. Lee Si, 
Mm-hmm. He became very, very prominent uh, with the Qin Dynasty, but he was he was not born into it. He was a commoner, and he was a clerk uh, at a at a local government office, and he really worked his way up through the system pretty Seriously. impressively. Yeah, all the way up to prime minister. So local government clerk to prime minister. And, I mean, this guy makes, like, Machiavelli and the Medici's look like cream puffs. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. You call so, them the Medici's cream puffs? <laughs> yeah, I, I am. Compared to Lisi, yes. Yeah. And not, not just Lisi. So, like, the, the emperor of the Qin dynasty, the founder <laughs> of basically China, was uh, an emperor named Shi Wangdi. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. I'm almost equally sure that I've gotten it wrong. Mm-hmm. But he was the king of Qin, the first emperor of Qin. And um, he was pretty brutal, but he, he found good company with Li Si in his brutality and the way that he saw citizens and people. And then also the king's eunuch, who was basically tied for second place with Li Si. Um, he was the king's official spokesman. His name was Zhao Chao. And the three of them together just ruled quite brutally. It was, you know, you, you bribe people, and if they didn't take bribes, you killed them. Uh, you tricked neighboring states into accepting your rule. Book burning was huge. And this is what Lisi is most commonly remembered for, is instituting a policy of burning most books, especially history books, in an effort to kind of form a, um, a single way of thinking for all Chinese to to fall in line with. And the way that you start that is to get rid of everything that's been written that doesn't fall into that line of thinking. So he instituted like a an empire-wide book-burning drive. Yeah, I think like the only thing that he said it was okay are books on medicine, uh, books on growing things and agriculture, and then divination, which I think I, I can't believe we haven't done a podcast on that at this point. Is that water witching? Yeah, I think so, right? Yeah, I think that's probably also like reading frog guts and tea leaves and stuff to see the future. Oh, well, that that part totally makes sense. <laughs> right, <laughs> because you got to know how it's going to come. And had uh, Lee C. been at all capable of divination, he would have seen that his end was coming horribly ironically and it was going to be very painful for him. Yeah, so they, like, speaking of Machiavelli, they, they definitely led the path in do anything necessary to get what you want. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what, I'm pretty I'm pretty into torture as a means of getting what I want. Yeah. And I've invented a pretty foolproof way to uh, ensure that someone is dead or gives us what we want. And I imagine it ended up dead anyway. Yeah. And it was called The Five Pains. And it's basically cutting things off of the body one at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, until you get to five, which is the body. Uh, you cut the nose off first, then you cut off a hand, hmm. then you cut off a foot, then you cut off the the penis. Or the the uh, vagina. Sure, the, castration. The yeah. And finally, you, you're just cut in half. Your body is cut in half. They're like, I'm done with you. Yeah, the five pains really undersells it. It really does. So, Because the five pains for me are traffic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Traffic. This is the five unbearables. Yeah, social media. Yeah, right. none of them involve cutting off hands and feet. A nose, man. Can you imagine losing your nose? That's first, too. Yeah. So, um, Lisi is credited in some circles with inventing that. Others say it's not entirely clear. But um, Shi Wangdi, the emperor, when he died, he died abroad suddenly. And 
Jiao Chao and Li Si decided to conceal it because the king had said, my eldest son is my heir. I want him to take over after I die. Yeah. So Li Si and Jiao Chao got rid of that decree and forged a new decree to the oldest son who had been exiled for opposing that book-burning idea. Yeah, that, that was the reason it was a problem is because he was no friend of Li Si. Right, exactly. So Li Si uh, and Zhao Chao drafted a new decree from the king, and it said, son, kill yourself. <laughs> and they sent it to him, and the son killed himself. Yeah. So they had, now they had consolidated their power, and they named an infant son of uh, Xi, Xi Wangdi to be the, the new ruler. They decided that wasn't any good, so they killed the infant, and then they turned on each other, yeah. and Zhao Chao got the upper hand and said, Li Si, I have some terrible news for you. <laughs> You're about to face the five pains yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is when, you're, when you've got two psychotic creeps working <laughs> right. together, eventually one of them is going to turn on the other. That's how it always goes. Let's hope that never happens to us, because we're <laughs> a pair of psychotic creeps working together, you know? Um, what is a king's eunuch? The, so the eunuch was a castrated Well, I know servant. what a eunuch is, but like, so the uh, king's uh, eunuch, is. why did they castrate them? Just to uh, render guess, them... Subjugated or whatever, or trustworthy. Like now, I can trust you around my wife or whatever. I'm uh, pretty sure that's what why people were okay. unicized. Gotcha. But in this case, he was like the spokesperson for the the emperor. He was like the the highest. The the imagine like the the press secretary and the chief of staff combined. Right. That's kind of what he was. But no penis. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So he, uh, so Zhao Chao turns on Li Si and, and has him executed through the five, five pains, yep. his invention, supposedly. How about that? Which I looked into that five pains thing. It seems to come under the tradition of Ling Chi, which is called slow slicing, yeah. which, which is as bad as it sounds. And I think it's way worse than the five pains. It's it. There can be twenty four cuts or a thousand cuts. They call it, um, and they actually last used it in nineteen oh five. Wow! And there's a horrible picture of the man who was executed in nineteen oh five by this, like being executed through this this slow slicing method. Was he just of, cut all up and bloody? Yeah, it's pretty pretty rough. It's Oof. pretty awful to see, um, but it they did it up until nineteen oh five. Remember the days when we would send each other those awful pictures? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we got to a certain point where we were like, yeah. Seen, seen too much. If you find it on your own, more power to you. Yeah. Uh, you become a father, you know, and <laughs> right. I'm a father in my own way, so I feel like, you know, we have to protect our, ourselves from that. Now. Oh, boy. All right. Well, let's go take a break. I'm going to go watch a, four minutes of the Kavanaugh hearing. Okay. And I'll, we'll, we'll come right back right after this. All right, we're back. Now let's talk about parachuting. <laughs> Franz Reichelt. Yeah, I know a little bit about this one because uh, I did something back when we were doing videos. I can't remember exactly what it was. 
but one of our our half-hearted attempts at a video series. Uh, I think it was a blog post. Was it? Yeah. Those didn't work either. <laughs> it was like in that same series of the baby cage that like hung out over. Yeah, a that's right. Remember how what a relief it was when we were finally told, "Hey guys, why don't you just podcast? Because that's a job." That was nice. Wasn't that great? Yeah. You don't have to dance like a monkey on YouTube. Yeah. Or blog like it's 1997. People miss that <laughs> stuff though. It's crazy. I know, but uh, we enjoy this. Yeah, oh, I love podcasting, Chuck. All right, so it's the late 1700s. We're in France, and there's a series of, of men that are intent on jumping off of things and testing out this new thing called a parachute. Yeah, and so in the 1470s, da Vinci is credited with designing the first parachute yeah. just on paper. I've seen pictures. And apparently somebody did, somebody built it, and they're like, yep, it works, of course, it's da Vinci. But something, and I couldn't figure out what it was, but something in the 18th century, 19th century just caused, like, parachute fever in yeah. France. And there was, like, you really, you can't really attribute it to anybody else but the French, the, the development or the early development of the parachute. There was just a bunch of Frenchmen working on the parachute at about the same time. And maybe it was... The advent of hot air balloons, which was a, another huge thing in France. Sure. And they were like, well, I'm up here, and I, how am I going to get down there if my balloon starts to crash? So it's possible that was it. But there were a lot of French guys jumping off of, like, buildings in the late 18th and early 19th century trying out parachutes. Yes. I mean, over a 10 or 15-year period, there was a guy named Joseph uh, Montgolfier. Great name. <laughs> that means uh, golf mountain. Oh, nice. I Louis don't know Se- that that's true. <laughs> Louis Sebastian uh, Lenormand. <laughs> it's a, okay. I just dropped the last couple of letters on anything French. Isn't that how they do it? Yep. And then a third guy named uh, Bourget. He just, he's like Cher. <laughs> <laughs> right. All of them were kind of making parachutes. There was another one too, um, Jean-Pierre Blanchard, who actually realized that silk is pretty good for getting out of a hot air balloon as a parachute. He had to ditch once back in 1793. So there were a bunch of them. And Lenormand is the guy who actually coined the term parachute, which para in the Greek means against, and shoot in French means fall. So it's against falling, the parachute is. Yeah, in a way. So they, they the parachute was invented by a number of people, but there was one specific parachute, kind of like a wingsuit, but it differed from a wingsuit in that it didn't work at all. Yeah. And it was invented specifically by a guy named Franz Reichelt. And I would love to hear you say his name properly. Franz Reichelt. That's pretty good. Yeah. That, that's an interesting case, too, because this was a full, like, close to 100 years after people were successfully using parachutes. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was like, oh, man, these things are, have not worked yet, and I really need to figure out a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Franz was, I don't think he had a death wish, but I think he was shooting for the stars. He was, he was an eccentric is Uh, is what I've gathered. Yeah, he was an eccentric. He was a very talented tailor, but this article points out, I think quite astutely as, as part, part of being an inventor is knowing where to draw inspiration from among other inventions and inventors. Right. And this guy apparently just went through 
to um, first principles, like Elon Musk does, where it's like, um, oh, I can buy batteries on the market for this. Let me instead figure out what you need to make a battery, and I'll right. go buy those parts and make it for way cheaper. Franz Reichelt seemed to, to have the same impression about his flying suit. He just kind of made it up, not based on anything else. He just did it himself. And he was quite proud of it, and he took it to the Aero Club of France and said, check this out. And they said, do not use that ever, yeah. ever. Yeah. That thing is not going to do anything. And he said, ah, oh, nuts to you. And he started doing trials from his fifth-floor apartment window with a dummy, and it didn't work, but he wasn't dissuaded by any of that. Yeah, the only thing I can figure out is that, because, um, again, I don't think he had a death wish. I think he must have thought, the only thing I can figure is he must have thought a dummy, like it needs to be a real rigid human that can move their body. Yeah. And a dummy is just not going to cut it. So I need to try this thing out because I think it's going to work. Uh, it was a time in 1912 when apparently you could go to the Eiffel Tower and just tell the cops, hey, I'm going to throw a dummy um, off of the Eiffel Tower cause to, ch- to try out my flying suit. <laughs> and they said, go ahead. Uh, so he went up there, but um, I don't think he changed his mind. I think by all accounts, it was he intended fully to do this himself the whole time. Right. And the suit, like you have um, been hinting at, it, it didn't do anything. It didn't. And actually, I should have sent you this one, too. Uh, British Pathé or Pathé. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what, what the, the old newsreel service. They were there and oh, filmed yeah. it. And there is a haunting video of him. There is. Close up. Like, it's not far away, but close up, like, on the ledge of the first platform oh, of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. 190 feet or almost 58 meters high. Just, like... Waiting, waiting, and then he jumps, and he just goes straight down like a sack of potatoes and dies immediately. Yeah, 190 feet. Very, very tragic. Yeah, and on the film, the, you see the, the police measuring the depth of the impression he made in the ground when he fell, when yeah. he hit the ground. It's really sad to see. You're like, you're like don't do it, don't do it. Yeah. And you, you, But you know, obviously, that he's going to do it, and he, he died. Well, it was t- a time, too, where people were trying to figure all this stuff out. So they're all kind of crazy. I mean, I know we haven't done one on the Wright brothers yet, but, I mean, you've, you've seen all the crazy flying machines that people were trying to come up with. Right. It was it was a time of the spirit of adventure was in the air, and everyone there was probably like, man, check out this guy. He's going to fly off the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. I mean, they, they thought that, or they all had a lot of bloodlust and were coming out to see this guy die. <laughs> you know? I don't think he had a death wish either, Chuck, and— he actually applied for a permit. That's sweet. So, I mean, why would you apply for a permit if you had a pretty good idea you were going to die? I think he thought very much that it was going to work and he was going to live. And yeah. he didn't want to get in trouble, so he applied for a permit first. That's a good point. How about uh, moving on? Yes, number three, Max Valier. Valier. How would you say it? Valier. Valier? I don't like, I don't like extra letters. Man, I need to take French. Um, sure. Although this guy wasn't even French, was he? No, he was born, get this, he was born in Austria-Hungary in the town of Bozen, but Austria-Hungary broke up. It was very sad. And um, that town is now known as Balzano, Italy. But the guy's last name is Valier, so. But was he Italian? 
or what we would consider Italian? If he was, if he had been born after the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, he would have been Italian. But he was Austro-Hungarian. Well, yeah, but you know what I mean. I mean, it's not like they said, "All oh, you Austro-Hungarians, get out of here." I don't know. I really don't know. I would guess because it was an empire, there was probably a lot of movement around the empire. So who knows what his 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 ethnicity or pedigree was in his family? Well, we know one thing for sure is that he was. Uh, a smart dude, and he did not have a, a degree in science, but he was very good at figuring stuff out. He was, uh, an, 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 I guess, an amateur engineer would be the best thing to call him. Yeah, and a bit of a groupie. Sure, but it, but like a groupie who put his 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 actions where his mouth was. Yeah, so he reads a book by um, a German engineer named uh, Erman Oberth. And it was called the Rocket into Interplanetary Space, which is just wonderful in the in the early 20th century when books like this would be written. Yeah, this is this is I think credited with helping inspire the idea that like um, we actually could do this. Yeah, yeah. So this guy gets inspired by this book on an amateur level. He develops a four stage program. And starts to get to work on what what would be with, with a car company Opel at mm-hmm. his side, like in partnership, on a rocket powered car, not a a space rocket, but a car. Right. And he built these things, and they actually worked. Yeah, and Opel was involved in this to like a Red Bull degree. They were like, look, look at this crazy stuff. Check this out. We're making a rocket car. Yeah. But Valier was like, no, this is the future. Rockets are going to power everything. And he actually, I think some of the first tests were pretty putsy. Like one of them went 125 meters in 35 seconds. That's super fast. I mean, like a football field in a quarter in 35 seconds is not fast. But later on, he got some of these rocket cars up to 145 miles an hour. Yeah, that's impressive. And then he got a rocket sled up to 250 miles an hour. Yeah, this is in the 1920s. Yeah, so... Like these rockets are working. He's he's making them work. But then there were there was a phase three and four of his four point plan, and it went from static engines, just the rocket engine tests themselves, to rocket cars and rocket sleds, and then to rocket powered aircraft and then um, space rockets. Yeah, and to his credit, like um, it, it's not like things were going really poorly, and he was just pressing on anyway. Like like you said, he got one of them up to two hundred and fifty miles an hour, mm-hmm. so it would make sense to go to a stage three. Uh, the the rocket assisted aircraft, and then very tragically, May seventeenth, nineteen thirty, he died working on phase three. Uh, he's working on a liquid oxygen gasoline fueled rocket motor. Mm-hmm. This thing explodes, a piece of shrapnel severs his aorta, and he's dead like immediately. Yeah, uh, yeah. Everything I saw was that he de- he just dropped dead. Which so it must have been a heck of a severed aorta. I mean, right through his heart, I guess. Then, huh? I guess so. Jeez, man. Yeah, an explosion that shoots a piece of shrapnel that severs your aorta, you're not going to last much very long after that. And he was only 35 years old at the time, too. He had a a pretty bright future in all of this. A self-taught rocket guy. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. It is. But his um, this article's hilarious. It talks about how his legacy continued. Yeah. So he helped found a, um, an organization called, you want to take that one? Uh, sure. Um, I love that I take German and you take French. 
<laughs> and both of us sh- should have taken Spanish. And neither one of us can do Chinese. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Berin für Ramschifat. Not bad, Chuck. That's what I would have said, too. It means the Society for Space Travel. Because, again, at the time, this is like people, smart people are saying, like, we can actually do this. Let's figure out how to do it. And some very famous um, people were members of this space society. And some of the members actually went on to work on the Saturn V project, including one member named Arthur Rudolph. And the thing that cracks me up about this article is Arthur Rudolph was a Nazi war criminal. Yeah. They didn't who, mention it at all. Right, who was basically st- who plucked out of Nazi Germany at the end of the war from the V-2 rocket program, which just devastated Britain and other parts of Europe, um, and put to work on the, the Apollo space mission. And then after that, they said, okay, you have to go now. You're being accused of working people to death in your V-2 factory. But he carried on Max Vallier's legacy. <laughs> yeah, in a way, I guess so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Have you seen the, uh, the the trailer for the the Neil Armstrong movie? No, I haven't. All I hear is Oscar buzz. It looks good. Oh, I'm sure, man. That uh, Ryan Gosling, man, you, he's he's pretty good. He's great. You want to take a break? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. All right, Chuck, I think we're down to two. And this is weird because normally we do top tens, but we only do seven or eight of them. Mm -hmm. This is a top five, and by God, we're doing all five. That's right. With a couple added on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this one, William Bullock. uh, Old Bill Bullock in 1832. uh, (laughs) There was the printing and the printing press, you know, the history of the printing press. In fact, we should do one on that too at some point. You bet. Uh, Really fascinating. And many, many people contributed to the printing press gaining uh, traction and gaining in speed mm-hmm. and just getting more efficient and being able to pump out more and more what you would call sheets per hour, paper sheets per hour. Right. And up to, and by 1832, they're up to about 400 sheets per hour. There was That's good. Like, yeah, not bad at all. Um, it, was like, it was a flat press. You had the typeset on like a flat board that came down and you'd take the paper off or flip it over and then print another one and another one. They could do like 400 sheets per hour like that. And then this guy named Richard Ho came up with, he replaced that flat thing with the typesetting with a cylinder with typesetting. So it just spun. And you just moved that paper on and off as fast as you could. And all of a sudden you could do like 1,000 to 4,000 papers pages an hour. So that was a huge leap, right? And by, I think 1832 is when Richard Ho's invention came along. Yeah, so flash forward another 32, 33 years, Mm -hmm. and uh, William Bullock comes along. Again, a great period of invention in the world and in the United States. And he created the Bullock Press, Mm -hmm. which was, I think this is sort of the one we're more used to seeing now, which is a rotary press which had um, not sheets of paper, but one big, huge roll of paper. Some of these were up to five miles long where you're just continually uh, cranking these things through, and all of a sudden you could get 12,000 sheets per hour. 
Yeah. And what was amazing about it, so before, like, it, it didn't matter how fast that cylinder was moving. You still had a human who had to take a, a paper off after it was printed and put a piece of blank paper on to do the next one. With this, it was just fully automated. Oh, and yeah. you, you had a cylinder on top doing the, the front, and you had a cylinder on bottom doing the backside of the paper. So you could print two-sided, 12,000 sheets per hour. And today, from what I saw, those rotary presses that um, Bullock invented move paper through it like 20 miles an hour and can do like, I think, 64,128-page booklets in an hour. Now, they're, they're that fast, which is... I'm impressed. It's it's come a long way, but Bill Bullock, like you said, kicked the whole thing off with his web rotary printing press. And I mean, think about it. Think about making an improvement to a machine where it was 4,000 pages an hour, and now it's 12,000, thanks to you. You'd feel pretty good about yourself. Plus, he was a newspaper <clears throat> editor, too, so he was kind of doing this based on his own observations and how to make improvements in his own industry. And he was an orphan raised by his brother who was self-taught in mechanics just from reading books. Amazing. So I'm impressed with William Bullock, except for one of the last things he ever did in his life. Yeah, so uh, because he was uh, inventing this machine, he would work on it himself. He would adjust it and make repairs himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was at the Philadelphia Public Ledger in 1867. Uh, One of his Bullock presses needed some work. So he went in there himself, was working on it. And exactly what you think happened, happened. His leg gets caught in one of these rollers, and there was no pulling out at that point and crushed his leg. Mm. That turned gangrenous, and he died a few days after that. Yeah, during an operation to amputate the leg. Yeah, very, I mean, I feel like he was close to making it. He was. Here's the thing, though. From what I saw, what got him was he was trying to kick a belt back onto a pulley. And if his leg got caught in there and sucked in, that means he was doing that while the machine was operating. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So... Yeah, not that impressive. But he, um, yeah, that's a terrible way to go. Gangrene, through complications of surgery from gangrene, brought on to leg crushing, brought on by not just stopping to turn the machine off. Brought on by being a brilliant inventor. Great guy. Nothing makes me more uh, relaxed and enthralled than watching a a newspaper operation being printed. I've said Here, it before. Have you? Yeah, I'd... Have you? Because it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, I think I said it when we were talking about the uh, the, the the movie that last year was called The Paper. No, The Post. The Post. They're um, one of the hokiest shots I've ever seen in my life is in that movie. Ooh, what is it? Where the lawyers and the editors are all at, um, uh, I think they're at Tom Hanks's house. <laughs> and they're arguing, and they like the 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 camera's just moving around the room, just taking in all this frenetic scene. And one of the shots is Bob and David from Mr. Show, yeah. <laughs> like pointing into the chests of the lawyers, like in rhythm. Yeah. And then the lawyers are backing up in rhythm, almost like it's like a, a Rodgers and Hammers, <laughs> Hammerstein musical that suddenly is breaking out. It's crazy. I was like, who directed this? And then I saw that Steven Spielberg directed this. And yeah. then I thought, I think his maybe B or C director maybe came up with that one. Oh, like his uh, second unit was shooting I'm hoping, that day? I'm hoping. <laughs> I just love that he cast Mr. Show. 
How I great know. was that? It was pretty great. Did not expect to see that in that movie. Have you seen the paper, the uh, Michael Keaton? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. That's that is a world class one. That was a Ron Howard movie. Yeah, those guys know how to make movies for the most part. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Unless it's a Star Wars movie. Uh, did they make one? Uh, yeah, Ron Howard made the the Han Solo movie. I didn't know that. Did you see it? No. I didn't care for it. The what? The one I saw that I liked was a uh, Rogue One. Rogue One. That was great. Yeah, I love that. Had nothing one. to do with anything, right? It was just well, its own thing. Sure. I mean, I, it, I thought yeah. it was great. It, 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 yeah, I wouldn't say it had nothing to do with anything, but it wasn't like part of the. I don't even know what Star Wars fans call that. The canon. Yeah, we're we're just going to get slaughtered for this. So that's fine. <laughs> I've been slaughtered for less. So let's move on then. Uh, how are you going to? How do you pronounce that guy's name? Dacre. Michael Dacre. That's what I'm going with. All right. You're keeping all the letters. I looked it up, and um, I couldn't find any news coverage of it. That's usually how you can find somebody's sure. name. Yeah, and this is surprising because this was re- very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going back to rockets again with this one. Yeah. Uh, and this is a really interesting idea for an invention if you look at these things. I, I assume you checked out the pictures. Oh, yeah. Of the jet pod. Dude. So this guy's idea... Uh, he was born in the UK in 1956, uh, was a pilot in the British Army, and uh, a good pilot. And he had this <laughs> cool. idea for something called the jet pod, which is basically an air taxi. So he was like, if I, I think if I can invent something that goes, uh, doesn't need very much runway to take off, can go really, really fast in a, in a quick time, um, and land in a in a kind of a truncated area, uh-huh. then I can speed up. I can make like a a jet taxi where people can get from like an airport to a city center. Mm-hmm. In the case of London, he said in four minutes from Heath, Heathrow to central London. Yes, dude, which I'm sure you know this from when we did our UK tour. It takes an hour yeah. at least to get there by regular like car taxi. Yeah, by the by black cab. It's... Horrible. So the idea of getting from central London to Heathrow in four minutes is a dream by itself, right? Yeah, and these things are cool looking. They really are. And from what I can tell, this was not just like some pie in the sky kind of thing. Like this guy was on track. Oh, yeah. This thing was like the real deal. It was something called very quiet, short takeoff and landing aircraft which is a type of VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing, which, like you said, it just needed a very short strip of land, which meant you didn't have to, you didn't have to have an airport. You could have like a dedicated, say, airstrip, but it could be, it would just take up a very small amount of land in the middle of the city. And they were going to sell them for a million dollars, which meant that trips on these things would have been like 50, 60 bucks. Yeah. Um, That's as much as a cab ride. Yeah. And in four minutes rather than an hour. And the the, the whole point was this was, this was going to ease congestion. It was going to be a cheap and easy way to, to kind of hop short distances or medium distances. And he had some ideas for um, military and, yeah. like, ambulance um, uses for it as well. So uh, it, it was close. And who knows if we might have these things by now because um, in 2009 the guy died and he was – it was during a, a test flight of – one of the uh, the the jet pods. Yeah, there were a few of them. Um, I don't think we said how many feet. About 410 feet to take off, mm-hmm. um, which is about 125 meters, and would go like 350 miles an hour. 
which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he had three models, the T-100, um, sort of a, if you look these things up, it looks like a little ultralight plane, but it's a jet. Uh, this would take about 50 trips a day back and forth between the airport and city centers. It looks like a, a short bus plane is what it looks <laughs> like because it's yellow, yeah. Yeah. you know? It totally does. And it's like stubby. Yeah, it's stubby with wings and goes super, super fast. Yeah. Uh, then he had the M300, which was bigger. Bigger. This is the one that like um, he thought could take the place of like military helicopters. Right. Or not take the place of, but, you know, assist with like, right. removing injured soldiers from the battlefield. And then the E-400 was like a, like a flying ambulance. Yeah. So these things, like you said, they were speeding along. Again, not pie in the sky. This was a real thing that was happening. Mm -hmm. And then on August 16th, 2009, not very long ago, he took one of the eight-seater models, uh, a prototype, uh, in Malaysia for a test flight. I also saw it was in Taiwan. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell where it actually happened. Interesting. So he, and this is where it gets a little frustrating because he, he could not get airborne on three attempts. And that to me is when you're like, all right, let's just ground it for the day mm -hmm. and figure this out. But he tried it a fourth time. Uh, the aircraft went right straight up into the air vertically mm -hmm. and then right back down and uh, killed him. Yeah, it shot up 500 to 700 feet and then yeah. yawned left and crashed and that was that. And that was that. I don't, I'm curious. I would imagine that this thing wasn't completely scrapped after that. I'm curious what the status is. I, I couldn't find anything about it. It's the company that he founded that was developing it is Avcen, A-V-C-E-N, and I couldn't find what the status of that thing is. I hope they continue on with it because it would just be wonderful to have these things. Because another thing, I mean, these were jets, but something they had some sort of technology that cut the jet noise in half by 50%. Yeah. So it's not like we would just hear jets in, in, our, in our city skies constantly. It would Quiet, be much fast, quieter. Yeah. Uh, relatively inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you need to solve that straight up and straight down thing. Well, RIP Michael Dacre and RIP all those inventors, except Lee C. I'm right. not really interested <laughs> in wishing him well, um, who, who died by their own invention. Hats off to you for your spirit of curiosity and ingenuity agreed uh, if you want to know more about inventors who died by their own inventions go on to the internet there's all sorts of stuff about that and in the meantime uh, it's time for listener mail I'm going to call this uh, I love it when we get answers to questions that we ask because this is from Scott Miller mm -hmm. and we asked about how they test for colorblindness in animals mm -hmm. and he knows because he does that uh, guys just finished that episode in uh, Chuck's question about how they test. I was very excited because this comes from my own area of study in behavior analysis. It's actually a very simple and clever experiment. Uh, experimenters will, uh, will teach an animal to respond to a color, often by pressing a lever or button um, or performing some action that is easy for them. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, the animal earns a treat. But the animals only get treats if they press the lever when certain colors are presented to them. So in this way, if an animal does not respond differently between two colors, uh, e.g. green and red for dogs, mm -hmm. then that would indicate that they are deficient in detecting those colors. The same is true for birds, rodents, cats, and anything else they have tried this with. Congratulations on being one of the greatest podcasts ever. Love, Scott Miller. 
Thanks, Scott. Jeez, that How was How sweet really is nice. that? Yeah, that was very sweet. And thanks for explaining. It makes total sense. The poor animals, they're like, I can't tell between red and green, so <laughs> they don't give me mouse heads anymore. <laughs> Can oh, I get another goodness. mouse head? <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us like Scott did, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can hang out with us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. You can also find links to our social media accounts where you can sometimes find us lurking around. Um, or you can send a plain old-fashioned email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Howstuffworks.com.